To be grateful is to be powerless. It is acknowledging that life and breath and all that is somehow exist way beyond just you. It is opening yourself up to the reality that the world beautifully transcends the simple essence of your being, which is in itself a reason to be grateful. Episode 24 of the Becoming Human podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Kleberger, and that's annoying. I'm going to stop. This show is all about exploring what it means to be alive. Get smarter, fill out the map of knowledge, and live better. And today we are going to talk about my favorite word, the A word you don't want to be called. And in Stoicism, uh, this is discussed as, you know, a, a bad word, what we don't want to be. And in fact, this word is the very opposite of what this podcast is all about, because this is all about growing and being honest about our fragile perspectives and human li- limitations. And so I'm hoping this word helps us see why this conversational perspective is so important but also give us some ground as we continue to walk forward into uncharted territory. So let's take a step closer to who we are and why we are here by learning about the A-word you don't want to be called. Now, I have been waiting for like three episodes to do this. In fact, the existence of this episode might just be because I wanted to take time to explore this word. It may be my favorite word. So now I'm going to subject you to it. Are you ready? The word is, in Greek, amathia. Now, you find this word throughout classical philosophy, kind of around the Mediterranean, but it's the Stoics who gave this word the most attention. Now, in English, amathea might be best translated as intelligent stupidity, or another variation, intelligent ignorance. Essentially, the idea is that you are unaware of what you are unaware of. And we don't have to learn anything new because we already know what there is to know, which just happens to be what we currently know. It's it's the static enshrined concrete of knowledge and opinions, which is why the Stoics talked about it being the antithesis to curiosity. And more specifically, they called it the opposite of wisdom. Um, Before the Stoics, even a man named Socrates said, Amathea is the root of evil. Or or Epictetus, who was a Stoic, called it anti-wisdom. And if uh, you're familiar with a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a sort of philosopher, theologian, uh, but clergy person during um, Nazis' rise in Germany, he wrote this uh, essay, beautiful essay called On Stupidity, in which he doesn't use the word amathea, but he articulates this same process, where our disposition is that why should we explore anything further when we already have the map figured out? And if you've ever been in a conversation with someone 
and they are just defensively and passionately claiming their rightness, then you have experienced some semblance of amathea. You know, someone who assumes they already have the answer and, and there's sort of this aggressive confidence about them. You know, they're absolutely convinced that they've, they've got it figured out. And this is why amathea is described as the opposite of wisdom because, you know, such a person, you can't reason with them and they can't expand their understanding of the map of the world and either you're going to agree with them and confirm where they're at or they'll try to convince you, and if that doesn't work, now we're just going to compete and argue. And this happens in relationships. You know, think about personal conflict in families, marriages, uh, friendships. This happens with nation states, and this happens just generally in culture and society. A perspective becomes, maybe we'd say, swampily stagnant, which sorry, that's the, that's the best image that comes to mind right now. And I think I just made up a word swampily. And anyways, it's where you've stopped moving because you already have the answers. Your reality is the only reality. And unfortunately in doing this, we fail to acknowledge that maybe, just maybe a limited myopic perspective is incomplete and the map is unfinished. At some point, Someone decided that where they were was enough. The concrete hardened into cement and a living thing became a static relic to a previous moment in mental time. And I could have just said close-minded, but I just like Amethia better. I like the, the play on the A word too, so it works. When we fail to see reality outside of our own, when, when we close off from anything that doesn't fit our limited metal detector-like picture of the world, and, and when we stop moving and we stop exploring and we accept that our incomplete map is good enough, we have amethia. To be closed-minded then is a failure of imagination because we would rather grip our constrained perspective tightly than have to explore more territory and venture into the infinite amount of wisdom waiting to be discovered by this, you know, collective project called humanity. And last episode, we brought up, you know, the, the flat earth conversation and how, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to make a debate on this, but if you just read the perspectives being offered, a lot of the people who, you know, if you get on Reddit or some sort of social media network, and you read the, the rebuttals back, it's mostly people going, now, wait a second, you just subjected yourself to your own evidence. You're not actually trying to solve a, a problem here or come to conclusions. You're just trying to confirm where you already are. But this is also, I know the flat earth is, is an extreme example, but in some ways we function kind of similarly. Like we, we push for certainty so much. And, and I see this with, with folks in religious organizations with theology and, and how we will go to great extents to just stay where we are and anything outside of that is seen as a threat. And because we're so sure about what we currently have, we are either fighting against or trying to convince everyone to simply be like us. And behind a lot of the certainty, I think we believe literally that the world would be better if everyone was just like me. And I hate to break it to you, but it wouldn't.
or I see this organizationally. How, how many times have you witnessed some sort of like organizational conversation? You know, what should we do in the business or amongst the group? Um, and people, people are really confident in their answers. And their answers are quite literally just opinions. Just, hey, this is what I see. This is how I feel. Uh, This is what I think should happen based on my experience here. And there's never really this, you know, hey, maybe we should explore uh, how else this works. Or, Or maybe we should just actually go look at research and science or, you know, rational logic that's been done for thousands of years. Instead, we, we just jump to conclusions that happen to fit with what's familiar to us. And then we defend the hell out of them. I'm, I'm just trying to hopefully show that this isn't some obscure thing that happens with just a select few people. This is ubiquitous. And to keep from any pretension here, I do this all the time. In fact, my personality is kind of known for being like this. There was a time in in my career where uh, people would come up to me and say, hey, so-and-so really has an issue with how this is going, but they're afraid to tell you because they know how you'll respond. To think that I had such a disposition that people knew that I would get really defensive and try to use my intellect to argue them down, man, that was really disappointing. And even even in personal relationships, so my spouse and I, this will happen. It, we'll, we'll be talking about something with parenting. Parenting is a constant process of figuring things out and, and exploring and growing and trying to re-understand all of the time. And sometimes she'll bring something up to me where um, she'll try to make a point or suggest, hey, I think we need to do this differently. And my first response often is to argue for what we're currently doing. And in its people, this is why Amathea is called intelligent stupidity, because it's people who know a lot, who, who are very confident, who like the intellectual side, who are the most likely to have this closed off ignorance. Now, maybe, maybe you're not following along. Okay, one, one more example. You need, you need one more example? All right. Stop. Whatever you're doing. Open any social media platform. There you go. That's called amathea. This is something that happens all the time. And I'm sorry if I'm being too critical, even of myself. But it's not not, um, some sort of detrimental thing that once you've done this, you know, you're finished. It's just something that we need to be aware of. And we also need to remember that we do this because our identity is on the line. Remember, we resist change, whether that's physical change, behavioral change, but even mental cognitive change, because it disrupts where we are. It's a loss of the familiar, and change is always difficult and slow. What's interesting about cognitive change is that you can immediately change your mind. So it doesn't have to be this difficult, slow process. Yet, it is more difficult than other forms of change because behaviors are things we do. Your perspective are things that you are. 
So while there's no physical barriers to making cognitive change, you know, it doesn't take time or really much energy, it's a fight for survival. And as a result, this is why somebody who, who is greatly uh, embodying Amathea, they're going to jump right into arguing and defending and competing. And, and they're going to do anything they can to resist that potential disruption because they're fighting for survival. See, winning an argument or having this experience of defending a perspective so you can stay where you are, it doesn't just feel good. That's, that's not the, the reason that we primarily do it, in my opinion. I think it's because being wrong, acknowledging that our perspective is incomplete and in process, and acknowledging that it's a construct means that now we have to chip away at the swampy concrete we've entrenched and enshrined. That's a cost that we're willing to avoid, even if it keeps us from growing and seeing the world more fully. And this is what I see so often in arguments being made. You know, we selectively attune ourselves to certain voices. You know, that's ethos, if you're keeping track at home or certain sets of data and concepts, which is logos, or, or how we experience a particular thing, you know, pathos. And we do this so that it continually affirms the perspective that we've gleaned up to that point. And I think we do this for genuine reasons. You know, if, if it isn't the case, then the thing we've staked our identity in becomes a fiction, and who would want that? But again, this is why understanding the various modes of reasoning and argumentation and moral authorities and the difference between, you know, ontology and epistemology or deontology and teleology, this is why it's so important. And yeah, we hear that and we go, oh, just a bunch of big words. I don't need no big words, which is technically called nominalism, by the way. But if you don't care to understand the stuff you are naturally engaging in, you will end up guessing And the confused approach to making arguments just to solidify our rightness, it's a pathetic expression of human capability. Come on. We we can do better than that. And not only can any information be distorted to fit a particular agenda, we distort information anytime we try to present it. And it's even happening right now because we don't have all the information in the first place. I'm only offering this in this moment from my subjective perspective. And we're not going to change that anytime soon, but we can be honest about it instead of propping up our fragile notions to achieve whatever ends we are hoping to gain. So either we acknowledge that our perspectives are incomplete and constructed, or we live in our small world disguised as objective truth, especially doing so with this guise of such intelligence when we're really not being honest about the complexity of the things that we are talking about. I don't know how many times I hear somebody get into a debate where, you know, they'll throw around some nice technical jargon uh, and, and they'll, they'll push really hard to sound like the educated one. And I'm sitting there as someone who's not incredibly educated going, that's not actually what that is. Or, you know, there's a name for that, right? Intelligent stupidity. And in order to keep our perspectives from becoming this stagnant thing, 
we need to keep them moving. That's the solution to amethia. You don't want your mind to be like a mosquito-infested swamp, right? Then don't assume you've arrived. See it as a journey, or as we said in the truth episode, a process. Doing so keeps us from doing another thing where we are highly unlikely to change our perspectives. One of the other outcomes of Amathea, outside of resisting change and expansion, you know, for survival and comfort, or, or just, you know, trying to affirm our current state, and another thing that happens is how frequently then we find ourselves in disagreements that become competitive arguments. And we, and we looked at this uh, because of the epistemological problem, again, how we come to know what is true, um, but also in the conflict and conflict resolution episodes. When we clash with someone who does not share our perspective and we assume that we are rationally objective, then guess what? They must be wrong. And if our survival is on the line, we will be very willing to paint them with that brush. Anything that doesn't line up with our worldview means that the other person, you know, they just aren't as informed as us. And so we argue and we defend and we compete not just to resist change and and to resist the possibility of being wrong. But now we have to convince ourselves that anything different from us must be wrong. And quickly, everyone becomes the enemy. And the, the common response is, what is called dehumanization. And I'm not saying that everybody does this, but usually if we have to paint somebody as wrong, then we also have to express that somehow they failed. And we'll go to great lengths to, you know, diminish the credibility or attack the person who disagrees with us. And in conflict resolution, this is called an ad hominem argument. And it's one of those things that is not encouraged in any kind of conflict resolution situation. Because what's happening is we have to justify why we are right. And if we are just better, if we're more educated, if we've done the right things, then we never have to come to terms with our incomplete maps because we've just shown that the person who's different from us and disagrees from us is just worse. They're inferior. Which, hey, maybe, maybe it could be true. But when we do this, it also assumes a superiority that you, in turn, do have all the information. And what's really interesting about this process is I guarantee the other person is thinking the exact same thing. How, how can this be? And, and you see this all the time. Some sort of debate happens and both people retreat back to their base, you know, their insular tribe, and they say the same thing about the other person and both uh, congratulate themselves on how they won. Because our perceptions aren't seen as perceptions. Our perceptions are seen as reality, which is partly true because phenomenologically, which just means that the world exists as we perceive and experience it to exist, that is our reality. Why does everyone assume that they won the argument? Why do people go back to their collective group and uh, 
say the same things about the other person and, and how they won and uh, all, all the fallacies of someone else's argument. Well, it starts because perception is reality. That's the way we perceived it. But we perceive it that way because we need to in order to maintain the world as we know it. And so we become like metal detectors. You know, we're, we're just filtering incoming information through our current lens, a lens that's been formed by a cocktail of rationalism and empiricism, but also is constrained by human limitations. And where this becomes unbelievably frustrating is we claim others are rational only if they happen to align with our metal detectors. And if they don't, that person is dismissed as, you know, at best they're wrong or in need of our help, but at worst, they're inferior. So what do we do? When we, as brought up in the first episode on perspective, close off our maze, the maze, the beautiful maze of life, and we embody this labyrinth of a closed mind, which, you know, turns the maze into a prison. How, how do we avoid this, this behavioral absolute where in yearning for predictability and stability, we take comfort in the echo chamber of our confirmation bias and, and we hold on to a finite certainty because it is simply what we happen to currently know? What do we do? I mean, it's a complicated venture. When we allow the maze of human existence to become a mental prison of belief and opinion rampantly held together by our experience, and, and there's this whole issue of you know when intellectual value systems, the, the things that we adhere to, they offer this desire for certainty to the point that the nature of reality kind of prematurely confirms and isolates to our opinionated absolutes. And we stop searching, we lock the doors, and we take lazy solace in the reverberating sound waves of our confined chambers. Yet somehow, we have to work with this notion of amethia because we all do it. You know, please, please avoid hearing any superiority from me. I, I've just described myself. It's real easy to hear about amethia and have a bunch of other people come to mind. But you do the same thing. And so do I. And so do those people who instinctively popped into your head. Because this performs a biological, a psychological, and a sociological role in our survival because of the certainty we crave. Even if we don't actually have it. The entrenched perspectives that are often relegated, you know, unreasonably and superstitiously, you know, attributing certain causes with effects that aren't actually connected. When we do this to the point that certainty's impossibility is ignored for the security of intellectual affirmation, we have amethia, which let's be honest, that whole, the whole process is a bit of a deranged security, isn't it? Like, we get to the point where we submit to our own evidence can no longer be disproved. Man, we do this all the time. This is the water we swim in. We wander our self-determined prisons and wield our limited perspectives as argumentative swords. And it's this self-assured, self-contained closure because this fairy tale offers us what our limitations cannot. Which, can I just say... 
I am grateful, as one serious about the metaphysical conjecture, I am grateful that I and my species are not the epitomal climax of reality. But anyways, what do we do? How do we mitigate this process? How do we act with an awareness of this tendency and its possible negative effects? Especially since it's easier to stay where we are, you know, just like we talked about in the episode on change and resistance. Changing our perspective is just as difficult. So how do we avoid amethia? And I want to revisit that question I asked in the last episode. What would it take to change your perspective? Because whatever answer you arrived at to that question also is what is necessary to determine how we can avoid the problem we've discussed for so long now, Amethia. And as I've bored you with enough details, this episode and certainly the last several episodes is about time we configure some methodology for what we actually do with this. Now, we already hinted at this a bit in the map making episode. And uh, we'll see some uh, reprise there. And we also looked at four specific ingredients to how this works last time. And and all of that should still be considered when it comes to this new word, or maybe it's not a new word for you, but this word amathea. But I want to draw out some, some further approaches to this issue. And really, this is just my way of hoping that our culture may one day uh, be defined by this instead of amathea. Like, I, I have a real fear. You know, if America had an epithet, it would say, died from amethia. It's a problem. Now, you may be completely fine with all of this. And considering other approaches just might not be interesting to you. If so, go ahead and turn this off. I'm not going to be able to convince you otherwise. However, I would argue, in my opinion that your life and the world will not be better off. But I I can see why you might prefer it. But we don't have to be a victim of our own ignorance. We don't have to be subjects to amathia. And the first subject, though it's kind of technical, transcends the, the context of just perspective. And it's a catchy word these days. And we've already briefly mentioned this, and full disclosure, with the title of a show called Becoming Human, I guarantee that it will be brought up again. But this word, this concept, it isn't an abstract, new-agey idea. It kind of frustrates me that it gets uh, used that way sometimes. It's a very literal psychological process. So let's go back to some first causes of why amethia even happens and is a problem. So if egocentrism and myopia are the prime motivators for the amethia in our perspectives, you know, that you can only see through your lens and you don't have to consider any other, the opposite of that would be seeing the world through other eyes, taking on their perspective as much as possible and accrediting that perspective with the same validity that you do your own. When you see, feel, and experience the world as if you are someone else, it not only humanizes them, which is 
absolutely great as an aid in the resulting conversations within disagreement, huge part of conflict resolution, but it also expands your map. And so if we were to ask, what would it take to change your perspective? I'm guessing to some extent, it would be to see more of the world than you currently do. And the overarching way that humans can literally do this is through empathy. Seeing, feeling, and experience the world as if you are someone else. That's how we move past the egocentric myopia that is the essence of our current incomplete perspectives. And if you think about the four ingredients that we mentioned last time, all of them at the root have some sort of process of you transcending your perspective and seeing other ones. That's how we change our minds. And that's how we avoid amethia. Now, a couple really important things happen when we do this. Because when you, when you practice empathy, it involves you recognizing that another person is working with the same constraints as you. So in considering, you know, the validity of someone else, you have to grab the reins on your own perspective. And if you have given them some credence as a human being, just like yourself, it forces you to at least consider that they might have something worthwhile to add to the map. They don't have all of the information, just like you don't. And and we also have to be careful of propping up another as the absolute answer. But empathy requires both of these postures, considering their validity and checking your own. Our, Our tendency towards tribalism, it's built on the notion that me and the other, you know, we just ain't the same thing. They're the antagonist. There's a certain objectification that occurs. And and in my experience, this separateness and this objectification is built on a fiction. And that fiction has to exist in order to affirm my rightness. You know, my certainty means that they need to be wrong or else my certainty isn't real. Empathy then is the opposite of amethia because it intrinsically broadens your perspective outside of just your eyes so that you can see more of the world than you normally do. And it doesn't allow you to interact with the other as somebody distant, foreign, and wrong. Instead of a first-person perspective, you are now taking you know, more of a bird's-eye view of the map. And this is why, by the way, that someone with a hardcore position on something may change it when they suffer, because their suffering has forced them to see more of the world than they would have chosen to do on their own. Or why, when you meet someone and befriend someone who has a different perspective or experience, you may be a bit more willing to consider it because of the relational trust has allowed you to accept their perspective as valid, at least as valid as your own. Now, that doesn't make the perspective more rational, and, and it could still be wrong, but we open ourselves up to what we are willing to see. And my take is that the more we see, the more likely we are to arrive at proper or better or healthier conclusions. The more we embrace the complexity of the world, the more we know and the more we can wrestle with. 
Empathy simply is a way to say that other people are the best vehicle to expanding the map, even if you don't end up agreeing with what they showed you. And and honestly, the reason most people don't do this is because there is a fear of the unknown. We won't read arguments from the other side. We won't humanize the enemy because we may come to find out that our previous stagnant conclusions were wrong. And that's the fear of empathy. We, we may come to find out that in the end, they aren't actually the enemy. Amethia reveals that we may be our own enemy. You, know, you might find a perspective and an experience and form of reasoning that's in contrast to your own. You might find that you don't have a corner on the market. And, and who would want that? Well, someone whose goal isn't to be right because their goal is to understand the world as much as possible. And if you don't put yourself in a position to see more, the world sometimes has a way of deconstructing your perspective for you. You Just like with suffering, the danger of a static, tightly held perspective is, is that what happens when you tried to stay in one place, but then the world shifts and that doesn't work anymore. The long-constrained absolutes and principles function like a 1990s operating system with 2021's technology. So before we are forced to see the world differently through our own suffering or in a transformed landscape, before we put ourselves to be in a position where we have to be honest about our limited perspectives painfully, empathy is a good option. And when you utilize empathy... It becomes really hard to just engage in the same static, defensive arguments and debates. Competing as a form of conflict or resolution isn't really an option. Now, with that said, there are several other uh, approaches that we should consider utilizing with our perspectives. If, if the underlying cause of amethia is that we don't think we are wrong, you know, we assume that we're the rational objective ones in comparison with whoever we disagree with, we might consider a posture of exploration as a good alternative, of learning and filling out the map as much as possible, you know, of curiosity. And it's the Stoics who actually talk about curiosity is the answer to amethia. It's the process of pursuing wisdom. Be curious. And so whether it is, uh, you know, increasing our rationalism, you know, delving into reason and logic and metaphysics or whatever, or, or maybe it's about increasing our experience and observations and understanding the world around us, you know, both of which empathy is a great catalyst. The idea is that we can, you know, keep learning and growing. Think of it like uh, mental, emotional and experiential exercise, you know, perspective and identity fitness. We're all about physical fitness, or at least, you know, that's a normal thing to talk about. Maybe maybe we just talk about it more than we actually do it. You know, we have gyms and organizations and diet programs and all of that. We don't really consider working out our perspectives, this like mental exercise. And maybe the metaphor doesn't work. I don't know, but it doesn't seem that different You know, your body is limited and its potential for health lies in extending yourself so as to build strength and endurance and physiological fluidity. It's the same with your mind. 
we should have the same approach to our identities and thinking. I mean, in some ways, that's what I hope I offer, you know, at least. But what if we gave as much attention to our mental domain and its ethical effects as we did to our physical fitness? But there's something else that would be intrinsic to nurturing this approach. And this requires us to do what I've been pointing out for the last several episodes. Acknowledge our limitations and embrace your finitude. Our knowledge is limited. Therefore, our perspectives are limited. And if we are going to move past where we currently are, we need to take down the dam that we've constructed to block the rivers of our lives. We need to unlock the doors to the maze if we're going to avoid amethia. And once we accept that our maps are incomplete, there is an invitation to asking questions, being curious, understanding the world, and practicing empathy. Once you accept your finitude, once the goal is no longer to be right, the goal becomes to fill out the map as much as possible. And then pursuing conflict resolution and disagreement without those competitive forms of defensive arguing, they become possible. So empathy and exploration are, are the two main ways that we're going to move past this amethia approach. That's how we're going to avoid being called this A word. And, and it you know, only goes to help those four methods that we talked about last time and, and you know, all of the approaches of map making and conflict resolution. But the essence of this is that you can look at the world and say, how much more is out there? When we see where we aren't, we're able to see the possibility of where we can go. Embracing your finitude makes possible the acts of curiosity and empathy. It makes possible this process of changing and growing and developing your perspective, of taking what is inchoate in us and maturing it to vitality. The antidote to this plague of our cultural disposition starts there. Like, why not learn everything possible in the limited span of my life? And if the health and vitality of your being is dependent on the toolbox that you accrue, the possibility of living should be exciting enough to compel us into uncharted territory, even if it means the risk of moving past the familiar, even if it means the risk of possibly admitting that you were wrong, even if it means giving up this absolute desire for certainty through whatever value system we adhere to and feeling that our survival is at stake. Because the stagnant swamp of a concrete mind, it just isn't worth it. And the alternative, I think, is so much better. So as we end this episode, all I can say is use everything for its potential. Keep exploring, especially through empathy. Have an honest introspection of, of admitting your limits, of embracing your finitude, because that is what will lead to life-giving imagination. See, the hope for the future comes from acknowledging the present is incomplete. 
You have to put down the comfort and familiarity of where you are because it makes possible the beauty of where you have yet to be. We become only when we're honest that we have not arrived. But the greatest obstacle to living well and being right is assuming that we already are. And so that's what I've got on perspective. It's been a long road, but I really do think that if we could at least handle these conversations better, if we can consider these possibilities, I think the world would be better. At least I think my life will. And so that's all I've got. It, except actually one more thing. If you in the moments of this episode where I was talking about Amethia and maze prisons and defensive argumentation, if you find yourself saying, yeah, so-and-so is exactly like that, don't ask others to do what you won't do yourself. Begin this whole idea by putting yourself in your proper place. Always start by assuming that you're the one in the cave. And remember, questions take you where answers cannot. Enjoy the journey. See you next episode.